Good morning, church family. Um, and on behalf of Riverbend, welcome back, Simon and Annie. Uh, we are grateful to have you back. Um, and I mean, you hadn't been gone all year, so there was no welcome necessary. Um, <laughs> cheesy. Uh, but what a wonderful, wonderful way it is to start the new year, to gather together as a family to worship our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Uh, let us continue to do that now through opening up his word together. And so take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes. Uh, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 this morning. Um, Ecclesiastes is, uh, to some people, an unfamiliar book. Uh, so it's in the Old Testament. It's after Psalms and Proverbs. That's where you'll find it. Uh, if you go to Song of Songs or Solomon, and, or if you go to the prophets, you've gone too far. So as you turn there, some of you may be thinking, it's New Year's Day. Why would we turn to Ecclesiastes, an Old Testament wisdom book that is so hard to understand? And if you just read through it, it's frankly depressing. Why not turn to a passage like Philippians 3 verse 13? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now that sounds like a New Year's passage. Press on into the new year. And that may be the case. Uh, it may be the perfect passage for the year, but I thought I had it all figured out. Uh, I took our youth through a study of Ecclesiastes earlier in the year, or maybe it was last year. Um, and so I thought, well, between Christmas and New Year's, my, my study can be easy. Uh, that was not the case. I feel like the more you read Ecclesiastes, the less you understand. Uh, the more you read it, the more it digs into your own heart and your own soul and makes it harder to express in some ways. So why then are we turning to Ecclesiastes? Uh, Philip Ryken has this nice little story in his, in, a, in his commentary where he says, in the late 4th century, Eutrophus served, uh, and I may get his name wrong, uh, so, but it's a tricky one, but I'll, I'm going to stick with Eutrophus. Uh, he served as the highest ranking official in the Byzantine Empire, but he abused his power and was sentenced to death. Terrified for his life, he slipped away in the dead of night and fled to Hagia Sophia, a church, where he desperately clung to the altar and claimed sanctuary. Uh, and the kids aren't at Sunday school, and so uh, I need to explain what a sanctuary is. It's a bit like a safe zone when you're playing tag. So that's what he was doing. He was going, no, 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 you can't catch me. Uh, soon an angry mob assembled. They were eager for his head. But although they wanted him, they, did, they just waited and watched because they didn't want to defile the church. The next day was Sunday, however, and Eutrophus was still clinging to the altar. To say that the crowd was eager to see what the preacher would do would be an understatement. Would he give in to their demands and hand a man over to certain death? They would soon find out because the preacher had just walked in. The preacher's name was John Chrysostom, another hard name to say, but I'll, I'll stick with that. As he mounted his pulpit, he could see that the crowd gathered before him was a mix of those eager to worship God and those eager and thirsty for blood. Hopefully that's not our gathering today. Um, what would this preacher do? What would you do if you were in his shoes? With a man clinging to his pulpit, his teeth chattering and bloodshot terror in his eyes, Chrysostom took his Bible and turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. 
the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. He read, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a passage to select when a man's clinging to your pulpit. To illustrate and prove the point, he went even further. He used the life of Eutrephus, uh, the rise and fall of his life, because only days before, he had been the, the second most powerful man in the entire world. But it was all vanity. It was all gone now. In Christendom's sermon, he said, For who was more exalted than this man? Did he not surpass the whole world in wealth? Had he not climbed to the very pinnacle of distinction? Did not all tremble and before him, and fear before him? Yet lo, he has become more wretched than the prisoner, more pitiable than that menial slave, more indignant than the beggar wasting away with hunger, having every day a vision of sharpened swords and of the criminal's grave, and the public executioner leading him out to his death. He said all this while the man clung to his pulpit, and it, but he went on. He said, though I should try my very best, I could never convey to you in words the agony this man must be suffering from hour to hour, expecting to be butchered. Again, he said all this while the man was clinging to the very pulpit he was preaching from. But Chrysostom didn't want to heighten the, the, man, the poor man's pain. His purpose was not to condemn him, but to console him, to save him and to, save his listen, and, to, and to give his listeners the gospel. To do that, he called and challenged the crowd to recognize the vanity of their own existence and lives. Whether they were rich or poor, one day they would all leave their possessions behind, and they too would face a judgment day. Maybe it wouldn't be a judgment of an angry mob, but a worse judgment, a judgment of a holy God. Their only hope then would be the hope that they should offer to Eutropus, mercy at the table of Christ. As the story goes, the sermon was a success, probably the best sermon he had ever preached. He had a living example right next to him. But as he came to a close, he could see tears of pity streaming down the people's faces. They chose to spare the man's life. And so a life was saved by the preaching of Ecclesiastes. Now, there is no poor soul clinging to our pulpit this morning, and there is no angry mob waiting to slaughter anyone upon the conclusion of our sermon. But you may not be in the same place as Eutropus. You may not be condemned to die, but some of you instead feel as if you're condemned to live. Your thoughts may not be as bleak as this or as desperate, But there are thoughts, I'm sure, where you think, what's the point to all of this? What am I even doing here? What am I doing with my life? And what even is the purpose of life? I punch in, I punch out, I get up, I eat, I work, and I sleep. Repeat. And for what? You're born one day, live a few more days, and then at the end of it, you die. And once you're dead, everything is swept away like a sandcastle in the tide. 
One writer went so far as to describe life as a blister on top of a tumour and a boil on top of that. A pleasant description. Is that really all there is to this life? A few moments and then the end? These are the questions that the author of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with and grappling throughout the entire book. And as he does it, he not only asks questions, but he also finds and gives answers to these questions. For that reason alone, Ecclesiastes is worth starting the new year with. Because if you want to live life well, you need to know how to. And that is what Ecclesiastes is in the Bible for. By studying it, it will equip us so that we are able to live life well in this world that God has given to us. It will teach us how to have a life worth living. Let us then go on this journey through the first chapter of Ecclesiastes and turn in your Bibles to chapter 1 and read along with me. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south and turning toward the north. The wind continues, swirling along, and on its circular course the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those whom, who will come later still. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a, a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Let's pray. Now, dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here today, to be able to come to worship you, to sing your praises, and Lord, now to come to your word. We know that you teach us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. And so, Lord, here we are, eager to hear from you. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us this morning to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, we pray. 
Amen. Ecclesiastes is a notoriously difficult book to outline and to pin down. At times, it appears to have no structure whatsoever. It's just over here and over there. But there is, there's always a silver lining to everything, isn't there? Uh, last time that I preached, I, I had you turn to a passage, but only asked you to read the, the first part of it, uh, because I don't want to spoil the story I was trying to convey. I wanted to hold the tension right until the very last moment. Uh, Ecclesiastes isn't like that. It's the opposite. It starts with the main point, and then simply illustrates and proves that point time and time again throughout the remainder of the book. It starts with the answer, and then it says, here's how, you, here's how I prove that over here in this area of life, and here's how it's proven over here. Let me illustrate it for you over this way. And so if you, the, the silver lining is that, in a sense, Ecclesiastes is a really easy book to understand, because if you read verse 2, you can summarize the whole book. But in another sense, it is hard because it's not only written in a hard way to outline, it's also written in such a way that it not only helps you to know what to know, but it is written so that you know what to feel. The author didn't, want, didn't just want to give you information to just be in your head. He wanted, it for, he wanted it to echo throughout your body and down into your heart. He wanted to, you to feel the words that he was saying. And so to preach that or to outline that is, is a bit d- difficult, uh, but I'll try with the time we have. But even though it's, it's hard to outline, uh, I've tried my best for those, so those for, to, to give you an outline. Uh, and so for those of you who are taking notes, we'll break the chapter down into three parts. Uh, in verse 1, we will see, that we'll, we'll see the title of the book. In verse 2, we'll see the theme of the book. Uh, And in verses 3 to 18, we'll see the theories of the book. Title, theme, and theories. It's almost as if I was from Riverbend. Um, So the theories are explaining and proving and illustrating the central theme that is found in verse 2. I just realized, even though Matt's not here, he's still going to tell me off for that cheap Riverbend joke. So I'll just get it out in here and apologize. I'm sorry. So with that, that map laid out before us, uh, let us continue our journey. We start, obviously, with the first point, the title. Look again at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Originally, all of verse 1 was the title of this book. It was like those good old hymns that we used to sing, that just the first line was, was the title of the song. Uh, translated literally from Hebrew then, the title was, The Words of Koheleth, the Son of David, King in Jerusalem, which was then often just shortened to Koheleth. Uh, I read that this word in, the, in Hebrew literally means to gather, collect, or assemble. The verb Koheleth refers to the gathering or the assembly of a community of people, especially for the worship of God. So basically, Koheleth is not so much a a gatherer of artifacts or a collector of treasure, uh, but he's a teacher, and he's more than just a teacher in a classroom, but he's more like a pastor in a church. He is preaching wisdom to a gathering of his people. Now, how we get from Koheleth to Ecclesiastes is really just the the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Koheleth, which becomes Ecclesiastes. Uh, which means one who speaks in the ecclesia. 
uh, and I'm sure you've heard that word before, it's the, it means assembly or congregation or, tr- or church. So Koheleth is a title or a nickname for someone who speaks in church. In a word, he is the preacher or he's the pastor, uh, which should cause us to stop and, and to consider, well, who is this preacher? Who is this pastor? Who is Koheleth? Up until uh, the Protestant Reformation, there wasn't much debate about who it was. Uh, Both Jews and Christians alike agreed that the author was King Solomon, uh, both from internal evidence of the book and also external evidence. Uh, But since that pivotal point in history, there's been more and more debate about who it is, uh, because the author never just comes out and says, hey, guys, it's me, Solomon, who wrote the book. Uh, But for our purposes today, regardless of one's interpretation of who wrote it, uh, whether a Solomon or not is is almost of no importance, because if it wasn't Solomon, it was written in such a way that you would think it was Solomon, which sounds a bit strange. Uh, Those who don't think Solomon wrote the book, uh, their argument is that they think it's a fictional autobiography of Solomon. So it was either written by him or it was written by someone else hoping that you would think it was Solomon. Uh, Because there's really no one better in all of history to illustrate the points in this book. Solomon had everything that anyone could ever want in life. All the wealth in the world, all the time in the world, all the leisure in the world, all the wisdom in the world, and I did some quick maths uh, this morning, I asked Google, how, uh, what the population was in about 900 BC, uh, oh, yeah, and they said about 2 million was one answer, up to about 50 million, there's, there's a bit of a, a gap. Um, but if it was 2 million, and then we half that so that there's just 1 million females, that means Solomon had also 0.1, I think that was right, 0.1 of the population as his uh, wives or con- concubines. So he didn't have all the women in the world, but he, had a, he did actually have a percentage. Um, but he still found out that it was all not enough. And so Ecclesiastes is all about finding out that the world is not enough to satisfy. So in the end, the result is, is essentially the same. Read the book thinking that it was Solomon who was the one that wrote the book. Which brings us to our second point, well, what's in the book? What is it that he's writing? So our second point, point two, the theme of the book. After having introduced himself in in the first verse, he he now introduces his main point in verse two, which says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And again, I love what Riken said in his commentary. He said, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. And I think it's true, isn't it? It's, it starts off, it's, it's bleak, it's cynical, and it's full of despair. With his opening remark, Koheleth has added up everything, surveyed all of the world, and declared that it is all utter vanity. And he does this again and again throughout the book. 38 times he uses that word, translated vanity, which in Hebrew is hevel. <laughs> which means emptiness, futility, vapor, or smoke. You can think of the Hebrew word hevel this way. Imagine, for some reason, that you are working hard to extract whatever is inside 
of a bubble. You want to prove to your kids that there's some substance in there or something along those lines. So you spend hours, maybe days, creating a contraption that can safely house a bubble, suspending it in a perfect vacuum so that it will never pop. Finally, it's completed, and you eagerly and, and gingerly make a bubble, and you successfully get it and place it into the machine. Once there, you grab the specially crafted syringe, and you, you make sure to put some bubble mixture on it, so you can then put the syringe into the bubble, carefully injecting it, and then you pull it out, and you extract whatever is inside of the bubble, and next you close your fist, and you put the syringe in, and you squeeze it out, whatever was in there, and you think, success, I finally have the substance of a bubble in my hand. And then excited with your victory, you hurry to your wife and you say, darling, darling, I've done it. I have in my hand the substance of a bubble. Behold. And with that, you open your hand and, what, and, you, and you watch your wife's eyes look down at your hand and then you look back and then back to your face, then back to your hand and you stand there eagerly waiting for her to shower praise upon praise to you. But instead, you're met with a, a query of puzzlement and concern. For in your hand, there is nothing. The substance has gone and left you holding nothing and looking like a fool. That is what Koheleth is communicating with this Hebrew word, hevel. The idea is that all of life is insubstantial and is of fleeting value. As soon as you grab onto it, it will vanish. He is saying, nothing truly satisfies and everything eventually disappoints. And by repeating himself, vanity of vanities, Koheleth is highlighting that everything falls under this category of disappointment. Everything is pointless, he says. Life is hollow. It's empty. It's useless. It's hopeless. That's just what you want to hear on New Year's Day, isn't it? Get me through another year. It's pointless. It's hopeless. Why go through another year when it is all vanity? Why strive a whole other year if all it is is striving after the wind? Because Koheleth is writing of the vanity or vanishing nature of life under the sun. A life lived only under the sun will always disappoint and never truly satisfy but a life lived with the proper perspective will hold you up in this life, give you meaning even in the most meaningless moments of life. Life may slip through your hands like a breath, but Koheleth will teach us that we were never meant to grasp onto it in the first place. And to do that, he moves from, start, from stating his theme, proclaiming his verdict on all of life, every area, all pursuits, to now proving this truth in his third point. The theories proving the theme. He begins by asking a rhetorical question that, is ex that, that expects a negative answer. He says in verse 3, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Answer, nothing. But why is the answer nothing? Work hard, play hard, right? If you earn your keep, if you work hard to make a profit, you can then spend it on something. You can benefit from it. 
You'll be able to use that profit for enjoyment or security or, or for whatever. You'll have something to show for your hard work in the end. That's, what, that's not what Kohalef thinks, ultimately, because he explains why in the following verses in 4 to 11. He says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things. And also of the later things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Here in this poem, Koalith says, even if you work hard, gain a large profit, it doesn't matter in the end. When all is said and done, you'll have nothing to show for all of your effort. He does this by listing a series of things that seem to go around and around in circles forever, endlessly turning with no purpose in sight. He begins his list by highlighting things from creation. He lists the earth, the sun, the wind, and the rivers. He says, generations come and go, but these four things remain forever. It is always the same. Soon the younger generation will become the older generation, and then there will be a generation after that, and a generation after that. You think that things have changed since ancient times? Listen to what Socrates had to say about the younger generation in his time. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect to their elders. This sounds verbatim like what my father said to me, and now what I say of the coming generation. It has always been this way. A generation comes and a generation goes. But you think it, it might change in 500 years. Well, if we do that, we jump 500 years from Socrates, we find another quote says, the young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents of old age. They are impatient. They talk as if they alone knew everything. Does that not sound like every person that was over 30 at Christmas last week? Half of the people probably quoted that. And so Ecclesiastes is saying, with each generation... It appears that there is progress. It appears that something is happening, but nothing is really changing. People come and people go, but the earth remains forever. The world is a very repetitive place. The earth was made for mankind, and it outlasts us. It remains and stays, but those who it was made for, men and women, the rulers of the earth, they themselves dissolve into the dust and are forgotten. So what gain is there really? Nothing, Ecclesiastes says. 
But as if this wasn't enough to make his point, Kohaleth continues his poem with examples from the human experience. He speaks of the eye, the ear, the mind, and the memory, and how all of it is wearisome. He is again showing how tiresome and futile this life is. And because of, of, of this, in verse 12, he then begins his searching for meaning, and he begins by eva- evaluating and looking into wisdom. But again, he concludes, verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. And then he does this again and again throughout the, the remainder of the entire book. He has 12 chapters explaining verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He is pursuing a reason to live. He is seeking out the meaning of life and endeavoring to answer the question, what am I to do with my life? And I think he's made the point. I think we can stop and ask ourselves these questions. He's shown the futility of man, and now we have to consider ourselves, is what we're doing futile? What is the point? If there is nothing to gain, and and if all of us will soon be forgotten, why do we even bother? Or let me ask ask you it this way, is it reasonable to live when you do not understand what life is about? Should we all just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? No, I don't, I don't think so. That's not the conclusion that Ecclesiastes would have us come to. The author's goal may drive us to our knees in despair, but he never wanted to drive us to our graves. No, he wanted us to come to the same conclusion that St. Augustine came to. Our heart is restless until it rests in God. Oh, what joy it is to read this book, to see the vanity of life, and then stop and turn our ear and hear our Lord and Saviour say, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or to go a few more pages on and, and to read his apostles' words in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Everything in this world has been so tainted and so affected with sin that Romans 8 even teaches us, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then all that you work for and live for will perish. There is no gain for your life. There is no point. There's no fulfillment. That's it. One shot and then all gone. Why would you choose to live such a futile and worthless and weary life when the Lord Jesus Christ is calling to you this morning? have abundant life, have true life, have everlasting life. Why not choose now this life in Christ? Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Turn to him for true and everlasting life.
And then with Him, you can live a life worth living. And for us, and for those of us who have already turned and bowed our knees to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we survey the world and we see vanity of vanities, all is vanities, may it give us reason to praise our Lord and Saviour who has given us life, a purpose and a meaning and a joy and a gladness in our hearts. He has given us saving and true life. I hope that as we go through Ecclesiastes, or as we have gone through Ecclesiastes just briefly, that it's caused us to look upon the Saviour with a new thankfulness, with a, great, uh, with a greater gladness in our hearts for Him. I hope that by reflecting on, upon the vanity of life, it has caused us to ask ourselves, are the things I am living for worth Christ dying for? Your New Year's resolutions may be lose weight, get healthy, make more money, get a bigger savings, get a bigger bank account, however, travel the world, uh, get a girlfriend, get a boyfriend. There's heaps of resolutions out there that statistically are 50% going to be broken. Um, why not make a better resolution and ask yourselves, are the things I'm living for or striving for worth Christ dying for? He's the one that gives us true life. Should we not live our lives in subjection and glory to him? Ultimately, Ecclesiastes is a signpost pointing to true life, everlasting life, eternal life, and satisfying life in the person and work of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. May he be glorified as we look to him, and may you read Ecclesiastes throughout the week and be driven to your knees in despair, but then also pointed to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and thank him now. Our Lord and our Saviour, we are thankful for this, this book of yours that you've given to us that shows us that all the striving in the world ultimately leads to nothing if you're not the one we're striving after. Everything else slips through our fingers and is quickly forgotten. But Lord, would you help us to cling on to Christ because he is a sure and steady rock that we can forever hold on to. And Lord, you hold us back. You hold on to us. And so we are your grateful people. And we ask that you would be glorified through us. Amen.